text for today is going to be Ephesians, specifically um, Ephesians 1, 12 through 14. But I'm just going to read uh, the context, 11 through 14 as well. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Actually, about two weeks ago, I didn't share this with anyone, um, but it was my 15-year anniversary with Jesus. So 15 years ago, I, uh, Jesus totally transformed my life and uh, was born again, and I've never been the same. And it's been amazing. I, I love him more than ever. So grateful for him. But in this last 15 years, I've had some seasons where I could not shake addictions I could not shake sin, and I just felt like I could never be free, never be free from all this junk. It, it felt like um, just times where I fell right back after I just repented, and I have this thought, I need to repent to God, but how can I repent to you, God? I just said sorry about this like 10 minutes ago. Everything I say right now is just a lie. I can't say it. And so, like Pastor Ross said last week, I kind of put myself in a penalty box and after maybe enough streak of being really pure or really awesome, then I would come back to God. Um, and maybe some of you guys can relate with me in that. And there's other seasons that I wasn't struggling necessarily with addictions, but life was just so hard. I just could not stand how painful life was, especially uh, some seasons in my home, that I, I just would say, Jesus, I just can't live life. I can't handle this suppression. I can't handle living this earth apart from you. Would you just come? Because I just can't handle it. And so maybe some of you guys can relate with that. Or maybe you're relating with me right now because that's the season you're in. And so the questions we're going to be really tackling is how can we hang on when life is so hard to hold on to? How do we, how do we keep following Jesus despite this fallen world that just seems to be everything is stacked against us? How can we be sure that God will follow through with his promises that he has made that sound so good that they're too good to be true? How do we deal with the fact that our hearts are so prone to wander? And if you guys have heard the song, Come Thou Fount, almost any time I hear that song sung, the moment it goes prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I almost always hear it the loudest. People resonate with that line. So how do we do this? How do we hang on? And the great news is that God has an answer in his word. And so would you look at Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to start at verse 3 because just kind of paint the, the broader context of where we're heading and where we're at. Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to God, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, two weeks ago, I, I made the point that God is a father who delights to predestine us for adoption. Last week, Ross talked about that it's only through the blood of Jesus that we can be really set free. And this week, we're going to be answering the burden of how do we 
have all this? How do we get all this? Because verse 3 talks about these blessings, and the rest of the chapter to verse 14 unpacks what are these heavenly blessings that we have in store for us one day and now. And so this week, we, we discover how do we get those when life is so hard? And so the takeaway point, if you're taking notes, is this. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we get God and he gets us. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we get God and he gets us. And if you note, in the very beginning of verse 4, it talks about predestination before the foundation of the earth. And so it's this idea that it starts from before the foundation of the earth all the way to verse 14, which is this beautiful picture of glorification. And so from the beginning of time to the end of time, these blessings are for us. And so Ephesians 1 unpacks that, and that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. But I want to make a comment and remind you, who's writing this? Paul. And where is he writing this from? Prison. This is why Ephesians is called a prison epistle. He wrote it from prison. And yet, throughout chapter 1, he is responding in praise he can't help himself multiple times. And if, if you want to write in your Bible, look for all the times that says to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his glory. Because over and over, Paul is going to say, this is something great that's happened. And then go, oh my gosh, God, you're amazing. I love you. This is so great. I mean, that's the way I say it. But he, he says it in Greek in a different way. But he's responding over and over again about all these blessings that God has given us. And so Paul's heart... Paul's body may have been in prison, but his heart was in heaven. And so one thing that I'm going to mention that we're going to dig deeper next week is that this idea of already, not yet. Already, not yet. Or truly, but not fully. See, these blessings are not fully here, which is the annoying hard part, is because we hear about these blessings and yet our lives are still fraught with trial and challenges and our hearts are so prone to wonder. But Paul had such a vision of Christ and vision of what God has already done for him and will give to him that it's almost as if the future realities were overflowing into his present reality. It's, it's like the times where you know something so good is about to happen that the joys of that future event are spilling in to, to the present and so you're working with a coworker, and they have this cheesy grin on their face. And you're like, hey, why are you smiling? Why are you so happy? And they're like, tomorrow I'm going to Disney World, the happiest place in the world, or wherever it is, right? You, you guys have all experienced the times where something future is so tangible and so close to you that you can feel the joy in the present. So that's what Ephesians 1 is doing constantly. It's giving us a foretaste, and we get to experience those realities, not fully, but truly. We'll talk about that more next week. And so now we're at our text, the final third great blessing that God, that Paul is highlighting, verse 13. And you also were included, hold on, and then you'll, this is weird, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you are marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. A couple of quick questions. Who is believing here? What did they hear and believe? And what happened when they heard and believed? 
starting off with the first question, who believed? The verse says, and you also were included in Christ. So the question is, who's the you? Who's the you and the also? Would you look at verse 12 real quick? In order that we who were the first to hope, put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So note, note in this passage, there is a person, there's people who are hoping first. So who were the first people to hope into Christ initially, people group? The Jews. So the Jews were given all these promises. Now I want you to go to verse 6 in chapter 3, Ephesians 3, 6. Last week, Ross talked about this word mystery. And that is the wrong passage. Who made these? You know who made these? I did. <laughs> I'm the one who made this. So I can't even blame anyone but myself. All right. So verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with, with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul's trying to unpack is all these amazing blessings that are for the Jews, hey, they're for you also. They were first for the Jews and now for us. Now the problem with this is that all of us being non-Jews, as far as I can tell, if I'm going to quickly stereotype all of you by looking at you, most of us are not from Jewish um, descent. Thanks, honey. And so, and if you grew up in the States and you grew up in a church area, sometimes we take for granted the fact that we're included in the covenant. Oh, yeah, of course God loves me. Of course these blessings are for me. But I want to remind you, there was a time where anyone who was not a Jew was on the outside of the tent, on the outside, and couldn't even go near the Holy of Holies, not even near the holy place, not even in, the, in, in, in one of the courts. They would have to be in something called the court of the Gentiles. And they had to look from the outside. And if they wanted to access the blessings of this Jewish God of Yahweh, they would have to become Jewish themselves, which for men, that had severe consequences, if you know what I'm saying, okay? And so there was a time where people were on the outside and said, I want some of that, and the Jewish people were saying, no, 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 that's not really for you unless you want to become just like us. And so there was a time that this was hard for people to grasp. And this is only a few decades after Jesus was ascended, and so at this point, there's still lots of debate. Hey, are the Gentiles, Gentiles are basically non-Jews, are the Gentiles allowed to be in the church? Can they have the gospel? Is it for them too? Or do they have to become circumcised and become a Jew? And so this is still fresh on the scene. This mystery is that the gospel is for everyone. Which is such a sweet truth because Ephesus is, is where Paul is writing to. Remember, this is an actual letter that was written to a people. And the Ephesian people were not your poster children. They weren't homeschooled. They weren't like they didn't have their act together. They were one of the leaders in the world in witchcraft. They had the center of worship for the statue of Artemis. That all around the world people would come worship this idol. They would have uh, tents set up around that people could worship Artemis using their bodies in specific ways. It was a very wicked city. And so for, for a city that felt all this shame and all this junk, they could say, well, maybe the gospel's for you. But not for me. I'm too far gone. God can never forgive me. Which is such a beautiful thing about Ephesians because Ephesians is for all of us. And God is saying, 
I love you just as you are, not as you should be. Because you'll never be as you should be. And he meets us right where we're at. And it's for a bunch of fools like us. And yet God loves us. And that's why one of the reasons why I love Ephesians is because it reminds us that the gospel is for all people. Now, what did they hear and believe, these people? Back to verse 13. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Notice that these two phrases are impacting each other. The gospel of your salvation and the message of truth are the same thing. Message of truth, gospel of salvation. They're the same thing. Now, let me remind you that gospel, as many of you know, means good news. So what's the good news? The good news of your salvation. Now, hold on one second. Dale, can you do me a favor and take over the PowerPoint? Because this is, I'm so confused at what's going on, and this is not helpful for anybody. So, um, I apologize. So we're in verse 13. So let me just remind you real quick what the gospel is. This is the good news. This is the greatest news. This is what I love and I live for. And the good news is this. Is that God made man. And man rejected God. And yet God in his kindness, instead of destroying man who did not want him as king, made a way. Made a way. But, but here's the thing. God is so loving, but yet he's just. And if he is to be loving and just, something needs to happen. And rather than saying, it's all good, it's all good, you're good, God takes our place. See, we see early on in Genesis, and Pastor Ross talked about this last week, that when someone sins, somebody has to pay the penalty. And instead of us paying the penalty, the son volunteers, and the father sends the son with tears, and the son goes willingly and takes our place and dies the death that we all deserve. And he lives the life that all of us should have lived but were incapable of living. And then he welcomes every single person, Jew and Gentile, all people, and say, if you want me, you can have me. You can have forgiveness. You can have a relationship with me. It is for you. I made the way. You don't have to work and be good enough to get your way to me. I made the way myself. And so this is the good news that the Gentiles and the Jews were embracing and believing. And let me repeat this. It's the gospel of your salvation, but it's also the message of truth. There is no truth that is more true than this. And in our age where there's lots of talk about fake news, and can you trust the media and bias here and there, there's so much confusion regarding what is true, what is fact. And let me tell you this, this is the one truth that you can put your hope on. This is more true than me talking before you. This is reality. And praise God because we need that. We need that this day because there's so much confusion on what is true. And the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't just speak truth and bring us truth. He is truth. As he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But now here's a question. When someone believes in this gospel, this good news, what happens to this person? Look at the phrase. It says this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So God seals us with his Holy Spirit. What does that mean? 
And if you've been around church enough, maybe you've heard that and it just kind of rolls over your head. What does that mean? Paul is actually going to be using two illustrations here. On one hand, he's going to talk about sealing, and the other hand, he's going to be talking about a down payment. Now, a seal, as many of you guys probably know, is something they would use in, this, in the first century and, and even before, where they would take a scroll, and when they're finished with it, they'd roll it up, and they'd take wax and put it, melt it right upon the edges, right where it comes together. So it would stick together, and then the scroll would be intact, and they would take their seal, their only seal, the seal that only they have, that marked them for themselves, and took it and would and put it right onto that wax. And so the letter carrier would take it, and whoever received the letter, if that seal was tampered with, they would know that someone probably opened it, that something was amiss. And so Paul is probably using this illustration to remind us and to tell us that what the Holy Spirit does is he basically seals you, brands you, says this person is mine. I'm putting my mark that no one else has, and no one's going to touch this. No one's going to touch this one. This is going to get to its destination without tampering. It's going to come, and it's going to go as I said it would. And at the same time, it's using, Paul's using this language in verse 14. You see the language that says, who is a deposit guaranteeing? So he's using this language of deposits. So like any of you guys who bought a house, and Theo's with us, and he's a realtor, and he sells like three houses a day, um, people... To prove to the banks that they have money and that they're good for it, we'll put in a down payment, sometimes 10% for the purchase price. And they're saying, I'm good for this. So Paul's kind of drawing from this language, but I think even more, a better idea is a safety deposit. You guys, you guys do safety deposits? So we rent, my wife and I rent, and so when we got into our house, we had to put down uh, the same amount we would do for a month for a safety deposit. And what our, real t- our, our landlord would do is he would pull from the safety deposit whenever we would destroy our house. We have three kids, and so that happens all the time. Um, and uh, the other day I did punch a uh, door uh, on accident, and there is a hole in the door. So I'll tell you that story another time, but Jesus is still working on me. Um, and so the landlord is now going to fix that door with that money we put down. And so that safety deposit is a reminder of saying, hey, we have money, we're good for it, you can trust us, we're a good tenant. Now, in this situation, we're talking about far greater things. We're not just talking about money, but we're talking about life, we're talking about salvation. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's putting down a down payment of like a trillion dollars. So you're trying to buy this house that's maybe, you know, $100,000 or $400,000 or whatever, (coughs) and they're like, oh, do you have a down payment? Yes, $1 trillion, right? And this payment is so much that the bank is going to say, whoa, whoa, I mean, these people got it. They're going to take care of it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the mark to say that I got you. I got you. I'm not a fickle tenant who can lose his job after a bad week or because I quit. No, 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 no. I have infinite resources, and I'll get you there. I will pay every cent. I am faithful. Sometimes people talk about the Holy Spirit as an engagement ring. And I think that's helpful at times because certainly we are the betrothed of Christ. The church is the bridegroom and Jesus is the bri- uh, no, no, church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. But the problem with engagements is they can be broken, right? 
people break engagements all the time. And the beautiful thing in our situation is that we have a bridegroom who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I put a ring on it. I'm going to make sure I see you at the altar. And not only does he just give you, not only is he faithful himself, he gives us his spirit to make sure we are faithful, to empower us so that we can be faithful. Because it takes two to make it happen. Isn't this good news? Amen. But why would God need to seal us? Well, we've talked about this a few times. There's three P's that we that Jesus does is taking care of. The three P's of sin. So Jesus on the cross, he dealt with the penalty of sin. So we don't have to deal with that anymore as Christians. And by the Holy Spirit, he's helping us with the power of sin. And one day when Jesus comes and the trumpet sounds and he returns, there'll be no more sin. The presence of sin is gone. But all of us here, we struggle still with the presence and the power of sin. And sin has so skillfully joined the unholy trinity. And so we got the world, we got Satan, we got our flesh, all conspiring to take us down. So we got the deck stacked against us in one way, all trying to fight to keep us from Christ tirelessly. While you may rest and sleep, they never sleep. They're constantly plotting for your downfall, trying to destroy all of us and keeping us from Christ. And if they can't take us away from Christ, they're going to keep us from the abundant life of Christ. And remember, in the Old Covenant, the Israelites kept failing. They kept falling right back into patterns of sin. They would repent and say, oh, Yahweh, we're so sorry. We'll serve you and only you. And then you just read when you read the Kings. And then just a generation goes by, and they turn themselves right back into idols. And so what was the promise that was echoed in Ezekiel 36 and in Jeremiah? This this promise that there's a promised spirit. And when this Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will transform our hearts and give us power over sin. And so that's why we need the Holy Spirit sealing us to guarantee us. But what is the Holy Spirit guaranteeing us? What is the Holy Spirit promising we will have? Look at verse 14 again. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? So we're going to have an inheritance. What's this inheritance? What is it going to be? If you do a search of all the times the word inheritance is used in the Bible, you're going to see that the primary use of the word is property, land, Kind of all the things you would think, like, oh, that person's dad died, they inherited their home and so forth. So it hasn't changed much in that way. And in the Old Testament, God's people were promised a certain allotment of land. But in the New Covenant, we see that we're not going to just get this specific geopolitical sphere in Israel. We're actually going to get the whole world. Right, when Jesus comes back, he's going to renew the whole world, and heaven is going to come onto this earth, as we've seen in Revelation 21. And God is going to allow us to reign and rule and enjoy his entire world. So we're actually not going to just inherit a plot of land in the Middle East. We're going to inherit the entire world. Christians, that is. We are co-heirs with Christ. And Jesus, as the Son, inherits the whole kingdom, the whole universe. And we get to inherit with him and share his throne. Which is amazing. Just unbelievable. And the center of this new creation is God. 
God is at the center of it, and we get to see him face to face. And so ultimately, the inheritance is all creation, but what is really all creation about? It's all centered around one person, and that's God. And so our inheritance is that we get God, which is insane. How condescending of God to say, I'll give you to myself. I'll give you me. And it's going to happen until the redemption. Look at verse 14 again. It says, until the redemption. What does that mean? See, because if you look in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says this. In him we have redemption through his blood. So, so, so preacher, why are you saying you're gonna, we're going to have redemption in the future when verse 7 says we have redemption right now? Well, again, it's the already not yet thing. We have redemption presently, but then look at verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. There is a future redemption to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So God has begun the redemption process in reconciling us through his blood, but yet the redemption of all things in the world, all of heaven and earth, no more hurricanes, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more death, all of that is yet to come. So that redemption is here in one way, the ultimate redemption we need in reconciling with God, but the future redemption is yet to come. So until Jesus returns, the Holy Spirit keeps us until that day. He keeps us. Jesus sets us free by his blood, but the Holy Spirit keeps us free. See that? Each person in the Trinity plays different roles in the way we relate. So that Jesus sets us free, Holy Spirit keeps us free. The Father predestines all of it. In the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if any of you guys have read this book. There's, in chapter 5, there's this picture of the main character, Christian. He goes to this house, and this guy named the Interpreter is showing him this picture. In the picture, there's this fire, this fire that's burning. And there's a man at the side of this fire filling buckets of water and just tossing it on the fire, trying to take out the fire. And Christian's like, why? What's, what does this mean? Because these are all, all pictures, word pictures. What, why is this happening? What's going on here? And he says this, the fire is, is the love of God. It's the passion for God. It's, it's following God. It's the grace that God produces in, in hearts to love him. And the man is the devil, filling up this bucket of water, trying to take out the flames, take out the passion, take this person out. And the Christian says, why is it not going out? I mean, water beats fire, right? So he says, follow me. So the interpreter takes him, and they walk around the backside of this wall, and you see the fire, and you see the man from the other side throwing the water, but then you see another man with a giant jar of oil feeding the fire throwing oil onto this fire. And the fire just kept getting bigger and bigger. And no matter how much water the enemy throws on this fire, the fire just keeps getting bigger because the oil is feeding this fire. And that's exactly kind of what happens. The evil one and the world and our flesh are, are all conspiring us to take us down and just they're throwing just water upon us like crazy, trying to take out our fire. But then 
the Holy Spirit is sealing us in, and, and the oil is actually a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and the Holy Spirit is fueling our flames and our affections for Christ, keeping us alive. And though there be moments where the fire and the, it starts to dim, and maybe there's embers, the Holy Spirit continues to ignite. Look at the end of verse 14. Who or what is God's possession? So one thing I want to make a mention, I, this is all in the ESV up here. I'm preaching off the NIV. I'm going to tell you guys in the podcast this week why the NIV and the ESV differ in this passage, but ultimately they don't differ much. Um, so in the NIV, it says this, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Okay, I'm going to say that again because you're not be able to see it. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And in this passage, it says that we are going to acquire possession of it. Okay? Now, I'm going to explain later on what, why I believe the, I'm preaching that we are God's possession. But let me take you to 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special or treasured possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So according to this passage, who is God's possession? His treasure. We are. Which, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this. If we could just start to grasp the insanity of that. If you were to ask someone what their greatest treasure was, that would tell you a lot about that person. And you go to their house, and, and they're like, let me show you my greatest greatest treasure. And, and note, the person's house, this is God. He owns everything. He owns planets. He doesn't just own money. He owns the planets that have the money on it. He owns everything. And if he had this figurative house, he'd bring you in. He'd hold up his church and says, this is my treasure's possession. My people. I love my people. So much that I died for them. And in verse 18 in chapter 1, we're going to talk about this more lately, later, uh, next week. But it talks about the glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so the beautiful thing in verse 18 is it shows that God's inheritance is actually his people. Which is, again, insanity. Insanity. We are God's possession. And God is our possession. Revelation 21.3, one of the greatest verses. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, behold, God's dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Hear the intimacy in this language. He himself will be their God. It's not just you are mine, but he's saying I am yours. You hear the condescension that he's almost putting us up as if we're peers, that we're equals. That, that just as I t tell my wife, I'm yours, honey, and she says, I am yours. God is using that same language. We are his and he is ours. And so the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we get God and he gets us. Holy Spirit will keep us. And so then the question is, why is God doing all this? Why would he do such a marvelous thing? And it's to the praise of his glory, verse 14. 
to the praise of his glory. And that's, again, Paul is responding. He's not commanding as much as he's just saying, oh, my gosh, God, you're amazing. I worship you. See, God is glorified when we are kept in him. He's not glorified when he loses his sheep. He's not glorified when he loses his loved ones. This is why I am so confident that those who are truly born-again Christians, that God will not let them go. That though they have seasons of doubt, though they have seasons where they waver in their love and affections, that God will keep them because it is to his glory, that it looks bad. Remember Moses when he's talking to God and says, God, don't forget the Israelites. You know how it's going to look to the nations that you brought them out and then you're going to just destroy them after they cheat on you and they're terrible. And he reminds him for your glory. And so it is to God's glory that he is faithful to his people. It is to his glory that he loves us unto death. And while in the Old Testament the Spirit is among the Israelites and comes upon them at times, in the New Covenant the Holy Spirit fills us and seals us. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit also empowers us. Look at this beautiful passage in John chapter 10. If you you have a Bible, you can quickly turn there if you can. If not, it's on the screen. John chapter 10, verse 28 through 29. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you hear that? The the beautiful, sweet language there. They're in my hand. No one's going to take them out of my hand. God is possessed has possession over us, and he's jealous for us. You are mine, and I love you. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving, I'm going to give you my whole kingdom, and I'm not going to let you go. So beautiful. And I, and I know some people take this verse and say, well, and I remember hearing this growing up, well, Sam, the passage never says that we can't pry ourselves out of the hand and walk out ourselves. Has anyone heard that interpretation? One person? Two people. All right, three, three. Okay, okay, right. You, some of you guys have heard that. This idea that, oh, well, if the passage ever says that we can't just walk away from God. It just says that nothing can take us out. But you got to remember, see, the Holy Spirit, when he seals, he doesn't just seal. He transforms. He gives new hearts, new desires. And so although you may swerve away from the path, and although there would be times where your heart goes weak and you don't love God like you used to, the Holy Spirit keeps you. And draws you back. And so that takes me back to the introduction of this message. Every time I would try to swerve away, God would just woo me back. And like in the words of Peter, he says, Lord, whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And many of you are like me in that way. I am ruined. I have tasted and seen the Lord is good. I cannot go back to the world. And even though sometimes I flirt and I bat my eyes at the world, I can't go back because I've tasted and seen that he's good. That his love is better than life. And that's the powerful thing. The Holy Spirit, when he seals, he transforms our desires. He gives us new taste buds, new desires. And so the idea that someone can be predestined and sealed and just live their life like whatever is preposterous. And that's what sometimes when people hear these doctrines, they're like, oh, well, are you saying that just gives me a license to do whatever? Some people call this called licentiousness, license to just do whatever you want. No, of course it doesn't. 
Because when the Holy Spirit comes in, he transforms things. I mean, how small of a view must we have of the Holy Spirit, the living God of the universe, to say that he could indwell someone and not transform anything? That's such a small view of God. And so if the Father chose to adopt you, the Son redeems you, the Spirit will keep you. They're all working together. The Holy Spirit will keep us. Is the guarantee that we will kept, be kept until Jesus returns. Philippians 1.6. I love this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ. Listen, if he starts it, he'll complete it. He's not like me where I start projects. And I'm like, honey, we're going to do this new thing. And then I quit after a day. Anybody like that? A lot of the guys, yep, I'm like that, right? No, 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 he finishes what he starts. He never starts something if he's not going to finish it. That's good news, huh? I want to conclude with five questions. Last week I talked to you guys about our four questions that we do in DNA groups that we're going to be rolling out next month. And uh, if you want to be part of that, come talk with us. We'd love for you to understand that this is for our members. But... Um, what I did is I added an extra question. So when it, whenever we study the Bible, these are five amazing questions that will really unlock the text. And the first one is just, what's wrong? What is this passage addressing? Second question is, who's God? What is this passage saying about God? What is he like? What is he, what is, what is he doing? And then third is, what has he done? Fourth, who are we in light of what he's done? And fifth, what shall we do now? How shall we now live? So let's summarize this passage, and then we'll be wrapped up. What is the problem? Well, the problem is this world is broken and messed up, and our hearts are prone to wonder. And there's so much uncertainty that we're not sure if we can reach the end to inherit all these promises. Who is God? God is someone who loves his people. He wants his people. He's someone who wants to be with us forever, someone who provides a way. There's not just a man but also provides what he demands. God is also our inheritance. He's the one. He's giving himself to us. And he's someone who is faithful to finish what he starts. What has God done? Question three. He has sealed us by his spirit. Who are, who are we in light of that? We are the Jews and Gentiles who have access to all the promises of God. We are God's possession. We are filled with his spirit. We are empowered by his spirit. We are sealed by his spirit. And we are co-heirs for everything, with everything, with Christ. We get everything. And the final question is, how should we now live in light of who we are? Remember, being always should be first before doing. Because God has done this, what do we do now in light of that as he's transformed us? Number one. If you are not trusting in Christ, you can have him. If you're not sure that you are sealed, you can have him. And the danger of passages like these is that we get so caught up wondering about God's sovereignty. Oh, did God choose me? Did God seal me? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Just look. Are you choosing him today? Are you trusting in Christ today? Not, oh, did God predestine me? I don't know. Am I sealed? Am I elect? I don't know. No, no, don't even worry about that. Do you want Christ? Because Jesus has promised, Romans chapter 10, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So rather than wondering if God has elected you sometime and 
no, no. If you want Jesus, you can have him. Just come to him today, and I'd love to talk with you after. There are many others who would love to tell you what that looks like, and we would love to pray with you. And here's a question. Are you hoping in the spirit to keep you or your own strength to keep you? And so for believers here, are we looking to our own performance and how good we are to keep us or the faithfulness of God to keep us to the end? Also, another way we should live is that we should rest in the sweet security, security of being sealed by the spirit. What are the results of feeling secure? Boldness, steadiness. Imagine what it would be like if our whole church had this kind of security, that there would be no more fighting each other, trying to be better than each other, judging each other. We would have this steady acceptance and that we would not live for acceptance, but live from a place of acceptance, knowing that we are unconditionally loved and unconditionally kept, that we cannot lose him because he will not let go of us. We would also enjoy otherworldly contentment. And as you guys know, I said earlier, we got robbed this last week or burglarized. As Rob says, like, you know, we weren't there. And they took a lot of things from us. They took laptops and Kindles, and they took my, uh, a lot of things. But the worst thing they took is Joanna's wedding ring. And as we've been dealing with the emotions of hope and sadness and loss, we are still praying that God would transform this thief or thieves heart, that they would repent and believe in Jesus. And then as a result, we would receive the ring. And I'm just praying, God, would you bring that person to be part of our church? What a glorious picture of the gospel that be if that person was part of our church one day. But if we don't get that ring back, it's a loss for sure. But what if Joanna and I really believe that we're going to inherit the whole world? that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we literally will get everything. I think that will change the way I live. I think that would change my lust for the next Apple product or the next car or nicer house or new kitchen cabinets and new marble tile or better flooring, all these things that constantly tempt me. I think those would have less of a pull if I really grasped the fact that I'm going to inherit it all. And so I can be like, it's okay. It's okay if I live like this. It's okay if I don't have as... I, I, I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. I'm going to have it all. And finally, how shall we live is that we praise God. Christian, if you're here and you have stayed steady walking with God, remember it is not you, it's him. He has kept you. Some of us have had smoother rides than others, and we can easily get puffed up and primed. Like, I didn't deal with that. You still deal with that? I don't deal with that. When I became a Christian, I stopped dealing with that. What's wrong with you? That is only by the grace of God that you are walking in that victory. And so for the Christian who's not struggling as much, at least seemingly on the outside, and you've had a smoother ride, it's only by the grace of God. It's the Holy Spirit who has kept you. So praise God for that. So I just want to wrap up and say this. Who is like this God? Who offers us to have the entire world and ultimately himself and then provides every way possible for us to have union with him through the cross of Christ and then provides the way so that we can be kept to finally get him. The father irreversibly chooses us for adoption. Jesus irreversibly redeems us by his blood and the spirit irreversibly seals us 
to keep us. And so the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God gets us and we get him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as uh, Jonathan comes up to lead us in song. Father, thank you. Thank you that you held on to me so many times when I wanted to let go. And there's times where I went back to the world and I tried to indulge myself in the world, and yet it tastes like ash in my mouth. You have ruined me. You have shown me that your love is better than life. And I pray that if there's anyone in here who is struggling with their assurance that you're they're yours and that you're going to keep them, that they would have security right now by your spirit. That as Romans 8 says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I pray that that kind of, for those who just struggle and are not sure if they're really saved, that you would speak to them now. And for those who think that they're Christians and think that they're secure, or they're not, that you would totally strip them of all security because they're not secure. You are, in fact, they're, in fact, on your bad side. And thank you, Father, that Jesus, you have come and you've taken the sin, the, the, the wrath that we deserve. You, you, were cho- you were treated as if you were sin itself on the cross so that now we could be reconciled with you. And so if anyone is in here who's not reconciled, would you do that? Would you pursue them? And thank you, Father, that you're keeping us. Would you instill hope and confidence and that we look to you not on our performance because we're not as we ought to be, but we look to you because you're perfect and you're the one holding us. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So just welcome you for the next few minutes to have a time of reflection and confession and prayer. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper and walk through that whole process.